Hey guys, welcome to Sinister Hauntings. As always, my name is Kelly, your host. I hope you are all doing fine on this Thursday morning. I'm doing good myself. So this week has been super busy for me, not only at work, but also with uh, my three kids getting ready to go back to school. So on Tuesday, my supervisor, the worksite supervisor, and myself had to let uh, the clients know that the contract was being handed off to another company because the one building I work at needs more medical grade cleaning and the company I work for only does basic office building cleaning. And it's honestly just not fair to the clients. They are already going through enough mental health issues. And so the areas that they are cleaning are on a detox unit and a re-entry unit. So basically the detox unit is how it sounds. So people come in off the streets and they're detoxing, whether it's from drugs or alcohol. And then the re-entry portion of the building, they basically stay there for like 10 days and they get help with services to kind of help them and better their life. So a lot of the, uh, yeah, the clients, I guess you can call them, or residents, I guess, would be the more proper term. On the detox unit, well, they're extremely verbally abusive, and my clients that work for the company I work for, they definitely don't need to deal with that at all. So it's just, I'm honestly glad that a different company took over the contract because this building that I'm working at right now that I have to go to is in a really bad part of um, Minneapolis. And it's just, the area is very not good. It's not good at all. Um, I believe last summer there was three people shot in front of the building. I'm not, I can't remember what the reasoning, why the shooting happened. I want to say it was a disagreement. And yeah, it's like, I, I just don't feel comfortable in that neighborhood. It's just and it's it's not good for my clients you know to be in this area and it just I'm, I'm glad that it's that we're not gonna have to be there much longer I've, I don't know the details about it yet so um they the company said they could start the other company said they could start September 11th which is a Sunday and we do have clients that a couple of clients that work on the weekends because it's a 24-hour facility but we don't know if we're actually like gonna be done September 11th? We, we don't know. Um, we're still trying to figure that out. So yeah, that was on Tuesday and I was stressing about it because I know a few of my clients, they're very outspoken, which that's great. And that's, you know, I'm all for that, but I just, I was stressing myself out and just really nervous that they were going to freak out. But thankfully they reacted totally different. They took the news really, really well. It also helped that both my supervisor and myself put positive spins on it on why we're leaving and that we also let them know that it wasn't their fault at all because it wasn't it just the build the people in the building or the building property manager they just wanted more and more cleaning and and they wanted it done multiple times when in the contract that both Hennepin County signed and the company I work for signed they agreed to this many cleanings and they were adding it's just it just wasn't good so yeah that is what happened at work with me and then I also had two school open houses to go to for my kids so my oldest is entering eighth grade 
and we toured not really toured we kind of just found her classes helped her find her classes to see where she was going to be meet her teachers all that fun stuff uh and then we had a little bit of trouble finding her first period class we walked by it about three or four times but the teacher's name wasn't on the door and all the other classes the teacher's names were on the doors or they were there standing outside the door so we weren't sure and so we had to ask someone and they said yep it's gonna be you know down the hall and so it was the room that we passed by like four times so which is good to know and then today or yesterday i mean wednesday uh my two youngest kids one's going into second and then my youngest is going into kindergarten i'm really happy but i'm also sad at the same time and they're really excited about going back to school which is really good for them and i'm glad they're excited and with my youngest starting her first year i'm definitely gonna cry when she gets on the bus for the first time like even just thinking thinking about it I like start uh, like I choke I choke up and start tearing up and like I'm happy for her and they're happy tears it's just it's a really bittersweet feeling but I'm also happy that she's going to be able to socialize with new friends so we met you know my youngest my five-year-old's teacher the one going into kindergarten and she loved her classroom so much that when it was time to go see my seven-year-old's class and meet his teacher she didn't want to leave she started she got upset and comforted her and let her know that you'll be here next week and you're gonna be here for a lot longer and and her teacher seems really nice so I think she's gonna be just fine and I'm just happy that she'll be able to socialize and meet new friends and weird thing so my son doesn't have a very unusual name it's just it's different but it's also not like super common it's not a super weird name um but my daughter she has a kid in her class with the same name as her brother spelled the same way and everything so that was kind of cool to see uh i thought you know when i had my son that his name was gonna be pretty original come to find out no not so much becoming more common which is what it is so yeah that has been what i have been doing this past week so we are going to get into this week's episode can you believe we are on episode five already so on a quiet residential street in the small town of Velisica, Iowa. If I butchered that town name, I am so sorry. I had practiced and thought I knew how to pronounce it, and I actually just watched a couple of videos, like ghost story videos, like investigator videos, and they all said the word, and I thought, oh, perfect. I am gonna say that town just fine. Nope, I butchered that, so I apologize. I also trip over my words, and that's just me. So you don't like it, not sure what to tell you. I am who I am and I'm not going to change. So anyways, in the small town of Felicica, Iowa, a horrible tragedy occurred over a century ago. Well, even, yeah, over a century ago. I was going to say it hasn't even, it's been over, but I, I did put that in. Okay. Anyways, continuing on, that continues to leave its effects on this small town. The walls of this pristine home still protect the identity of a murderer who bludgeoned to death the entire family of Josiah Moore and two overnight guests, 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 guests on June 10th, 1912. What's more, not only do her walls hold the secret of the killer these many, many years later, they also continue to house a number of paranormal entities. Nestled in the hills, 
Hills of Southwest Iowa. Velisica is a small rural community of about 1,300 people today, but in the earth in the early 1900s, it was a bustling railroad town with about 2,500 people. At that time, more than two dozen passenger and freight trains stopped at the depot each day, and the town sported several hotels, restaurants, stores, theaters, and manufacturers. Within this thrive within this thriving environment lived just Josiah B. Moore, one of Velisica's most prominent businessmen, the owner and operator of the Moore Implement Company, a John Deere company franchise. He was a solid competitor with other area businesses. On December 6, 1899, Josiah married Sarah Montgomery at the home of her parents, and the couple would have four children, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul. J.B., as Josiah was familiarly called, and his wife Sarah were well-liked in the community, active in Presbyterian Church, and described as being friendly and helpful to their neighbors. On Sunday, June 9, 1912, the Moore family, as well as the Stillinger family, attended church. An annual event was also held Sunday evening called the Children's Day Program, which had been coordinated by Sarah Moore. That evening, nine-year-old Catherine Moore invited her friends to 12-year-old Lena Stillinger and her sister, 7-year-old Ina May, for a sleepover. The girls accepted, and after the program and ended at 9.30 p.m., the Moore family, along with the Stillinger sisters, walked home from the church, arriving about 9.45 and 10 p.m. The next morning, Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed that the Moores were not outside taking care of their regular chores, and the house was unusually still. Between 7 and 8 a.m., she knocked on the door, but received no answer. When she tried to open the door, she found it locked. Concerned, she called Josiah's brother, Ross Moore. When Ross Moore arrived, he knocked loudly on the door and shouted, attempting to raise someone inside the house. He then tried to look through the windows, but found all of the curtains drawn or the windows covered. He then got his keys and entered the house, quickly returning to the front porch and instructing Mary Peckham to call the sheriff. So, I should have added some trigger warnings to the beginning. So there are going to be some trigger warnings of killing, using an axe, uh, children deaths. It's just an all-around gruesome story. So you can skip ahead a few minutes or you can listen. But just be warned, it is very gruesome. What he had seen was shocking. The entire Josiah Moore family had been murdered, as well as the two young overnight guests, all bludgeoned with an axe while they slept. In the upstairs master bedroom lay 43-year-old Josiah Moore and 39-year-old Sarah Moore, both bludgeoned in the head, their bed linens stained heavily with blood. In the adjacent upstairs bedrooms were the Moore children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Mary Catherine, seven-year-old Boyd, and five-year-old Paul, who had also been bludgeoned in the head while they slept. In the main level guest room, the bodies of Lena Stillinger, age 12, and her sister Ina, age 8, were also found dead, killed in the same manner as the family. Belisica City Marshal Hank Horton arrived quickly, <clears throat> soon followed by other officers. In the meantime, the gruesome news spread like wildflower. Wild wildfire, I was going to say it again. And within no time, neighbors and curious onlookers converged on the house. Law enforcement quickly lost control of the crime scene. And it's, it is said that as many as 100 gawkers 
trapezed through the house before the Velisica National Guard arrived around noon and cordoned off the home. The investigation tells that the eight victims were killed shortly after midnight and all but Lena Stillinger were thought to have been asleep at the time of their murders. It was concluded that Lena was the only victim that had attempted to fight off her attacker as she appeared to have had a defensive wound on her arm. The attack was so vicious that the ceilings in the parents' and children's bedrooms showed gouge marks apparently made by the upswing of the axe. The axe was found in the guest bedroom, indicating that the Stillinger girls were the last to be killed. It was bloody, but an attempt had been made to wipe it off. The axe belonged to Josiah Moore. All of the curtains in the house had been drawn. Two windows that didn't have curtains had been covered with clothing. All of the victims' faces were covered with bed linens or clothing after they were killed. Other evidence showed that a pan of bloody water was discovered on the kitchen table as well as a plate of uneaten food. No one could imagine who could possibly commit such heinous crime, and the townsfolk were first convinced it must be a deranged tramp. Expecting to find the blood-drenched killer hiding somewhere in the area, a few posses were formed on horseback and in autos, searching alleys in the city and every barn, shed, and outhouse in the vicinity, but they returned empty-handed. With darkness came the fear that a madman was on the loose and might strike again. Families partnered with their neighbors to to stand shotgun guard all night and windows were nailed shut. In the ensuing days, every lock in town was sold out. Residents openly carried weapons. Neighbors looked with suspicion upon neighbors and rumors and accusations ran rampant. Soon, newspaper reporters and private detectives flooded the streets. Bloodhounds were brought in, and law enforcement agencies from neighboring counties and states joined forces. The murders began a chain of events that split the small town and forever changed the course of the lives of its residents. One of the earliest thoughts by investigators was possible was the possibility of a serial killer. The previous year, a series of horrible murders had taken place in the Midwest. In the fall of 1911, every two weeks, whole families had been slaughtered in their beds without apparent reason. These included families of the Burnhams and the Waynes in Colorado Springs in September, the killing of a family in Monmouth, Monmouth, Illinois, two weeks later, culminated in the murder of the showman family in Ellsworth, Ellsworth, Kansas, on October 15th, 1911. The next year, another similar murder occurred in Paola, Kansas, on June 5th, 1912, just four days before Velisica. Though there were similarities in these gruesome killings, interest in the silly... Oh my goodness. I... I have a hard time pronouncing words clearly. Mm. So, interest in the serial killer theory soon faded and was largely forgotten. Every stranger or transient to the small town were also suspects. One such man was Andy Sawyer, a transient that moved from job to job. He He gained temporary work for the Burlington Railroad on the very morning of the murder. According to the rail crew, he purchased a newspaper that headlined the murders and 
was much interested in it. The crew also complained that Sawyer slept with his clothes on with an axe close by and was a loner. Afterward, he talked about the Ballistica murders and whether or not a killer had been apprehended. He also told the crew foreman that he had been in Ballistica that Sunday night and was afraid he may be a suspect, which was why he left. The crew's foreman, Thomas Dyer, was suspicious and turned him over to the sheriff on June 18, 1912. The foreman would later testify that before he turned Sawyer over to the two authorities, that he walked up behind him and Sawyer, Sawyer was rubbing his head with both hands, then all of a sudden jumped up and said to himself, I will cut your goddamn heads off while making striking noise striking motions with his axe and hitting the piles in front of him. Though Sawyer's name often came up in grand jury testimonies, he was eventually dismissed as it was found that he was actually in Osceola, Iowa on the night of the murder. The alibi was extremely tight as he had been arrested for vagrancy at 11 p.m. that evening. As the investigation continued, the focus turned to locals and the community and a number of possible suspects emerged. The speculation of the townspeople caused them to identify themselves by who they believe committed the crime. Friendships became strained, and in many cases, irretrievably, oh my god, and in many cases, broken. I just, yeah. One of the first suspects was Sarah's brother-in-law, Lee Van Gilder, who was the ex-husband of her sister, Mary, a man prone to violence and having previous brushes with the law. There was bad blood between him and the family. Van Gilder, however, was later cleared. Looking at motive, the authorities began to investigate Frank F. Jones, a prominent businessman and Iowa state senator. For years before he opened his own business, Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones as a top salesman in Jones of Velisica, a hardware and implement store. In 1907, Josiah left the company and started to started a competing business, taking with him the coveted John Deere franchise. The two became bitter enemies, so much so that by 1910, they wouldn't speak and would cross the street to avoid meeting each other. Not believing that Jones would commit the crime himself, investigators began to look at the man by the name of William Mansfield, who from a tip had learned he may have been hired by Senator Frank F. Jones to murder the Moore family. In July 1916, Mansfield was arrested in Kansas City, Kansas, and extradited to Iowa to face a Montgomery County grand jury. Though local opinion anticipated anticipated Mansfield would be bound over for trial. The jury refused to indict him on grounds that his alibi checked out. In the meantime, Frank Jones lost his re-election as senator, but was never charged with a crime. Another suspect was the Reverend George Kelly, who was a traveling minister who happened to be teaching at the Children's Day Services at the Presbyterian Church, which the Moore family attended. On June 9th, 1912, the tiny, nervous, bird-like preacher had a reputation of being unbalanced and perhaps a pedophile and had left Velisica very early on the day of the murder. It was not these facts, however, that led to his being investigated. Rather, it was an obsession he had with the murder that turned law enforcement's eyes on him. His obsession resulted in a stream of long, rambling letters sent to state and local investigators 
private detectives, and relatives of the victims. On his next preaching visit to Velisica, two weeks after the crime, he arranged to stay over on Monday and visited the murder house. Within a month, officials began to investigate him, finding out that he had been seen peeking into a woman's bedroom just days before the murder and had been observed in several towns. <coughs> prowling streets late at night. He had also made specific requests that young women pose nude for him on at least three occasions. They also cited a, a disturbed mental state, including his sexual obsession in a bloody shirt he sent to be laundered the week after the murder. What a piece of shit. Oh, just, just disgusting. Kelly was arrested in April 1917. As the trial drew near, state officials decided on one final all-out effort to get him to confess. After a long evening of interrogation, Kelly dictated a confession on August 31st, 1917. The confession stated that he had difficulty sleeping the murder night and went for a walk, during which he spied the Stillinger girls getting ready for bed through the window. He then went on to say that he heard the Lord's voice commanding him to suffer the children to come on onto me. Like, that's not, like, I'm not religious and I'm not putting anyone's religion down, but that's not, no. The Lord is not going to tell you to do something evil. He, he wouldn't. And that's just what I like to believe. But anyways, we're not going to go into religion. I don't want to go into religion. I don't want to go into politics. Just stay away from those two. And we'll be good. The trial began on September 4th, 1917, but was dismissed on September 28th as the jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal. A second trial in November resulted in Kelly being acquitted for all charges. By the time the trial began, a majority of Montgomery County citizens were convinced that Kelly was being framed as part of a conspiracy led by Frank Jones. They believed that Jones ha had tried to use his money and influence to pack the jury. Another suspect was Henry Lee Moore, no relation to Josiah Moore, who was thought to be a serial killer. Several months before the Velisica murder, Henry was convicted of a murder of his mother and grandmother with an axe. He was also suspected of the killings in Colorado Springs, Colorado Springs, Colorado, in Ellsworth and Paola, Kansas. The cases were similar enough that all were committed by the same person. However, this was never proven. In the end, the police invest and investigators gave up in 1917. The murders still remained unsolved and the killer unpunished. Today, the remains of those murdered by the mysterious axe man lie in the Velisica Cemetery. The murder house con continues to stand. The house where the murders took place was originally built in 1868 and the Moore family purchased it in 1903. After their deaths, the house went through the possession of eight people until it was purchased by Mr. and Mrs. Darwin Lynn in 1994. By that time, the house had deteriorated so badly and was close to being condemned. However, the Lynns restored the old house to its original condition, and in 1998, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Today, it is open for tours and overnight sleepovers, and it should come as no surprise that it is haunted, so much so that it is consistently rated in the top 10 most haunted places in America. Over the years, there have been a long history of paranormal happenings in the house. Previous tenants have said they have 
spied a shadowy man with an axe standing at the foot of their bed. Images of bloody shoes, closet doors that open of their own device, the sounds of crying children, and clothing taken from dressers and closets and thrown all over the room. In one instance, a man reported that while sharpening a knife, it suddenly turned around and stabbed him in the thumb. He explained that it felt as if someone had a grip on his wrist. One family who reportedly ran out of the house screaming one night moved out that very day. Since the house was open to tours and overnight stays, a number of paranormal investigations have been conducted, which have allegedly provided audio, video, and photographic proof of paranormal activity. When the house was investigated by the Travel Channel's Ghost Adventures crew, they captured a a recording of a man who said, I killed six kids. Yet others who have toured the house have reported hearing child's voices when no one is present, whispers, banging sounds, falling lamps, and objects that move of their own accord. Some have reported feeling an evil presence in the attic where it is thought the murderer hid while waiting for the family to fall asleep. One story alleges that as one, an individual tried to enter the attic, an unknown force prevented her from doing so. Though there are many that say that the house is truly haunted, there are many who say it is not, including some who actually lived in the house without ever experiencing any mysterious activities. You can judge for yourself by making a visit to the home, which is open for tours. So I have looked up the house, and it is true. It is open for tours. You There are uh, daylight tours. You can go to, uh, you can tour it, you know, throughout the day. So the price for that uh, is $10 per person, 12 and over, and, and then Senior 65 and over get a five or they only have to pay five dollars and there's no reservations needed and it's from Tuesday through Sunday 1 to 3 30 p.m. There also is overnight tours so that it can be up to six guests and the minimum is four hundred and twenty eight dollars and so it looks like from what I'm looking up because I'm looking it up right now um it's not saying Oh, at nine. So, oh, okay. So overnights, the you it starts at four p.m. and then you have to turn in your key no later than nine thirty a.m. So you can go from four p.m. to nine thirty a.m. the next day. So that's kind of cool. And then I, I fucking cats. Let me tell you, they're great, but they're a pain in the fucking ass. Let me tell you. Uh, so oh, I don't want the history. I wanted. I was looking up on the website. I don't want to. Oh, there it is. So there was one, there's an experience on the actual website. Um, and it says he heard, or he asked the more children and the two sister Stillinger children, uh, to turn his flashlight on and off. And they did that allegedly. Um, there also have been cold spots in the house. There he captured EVP. And he got, you know, voice recordings from an EVP. Um, so, I mean, some people say it's haunted. Others say it's not. I mean, it was pretty traumatic what happened. Like, it was eight people that were murdered for nothing. And it's been unsolved to this day. So, 
And there have been other like paranormal shows that have investigated this house. Um, and then Bailey Syrian actually covered the murder of this house. I haven't listened to her at all. Like I haven't, I don't think I've watched her. Oh, sorry. I haven't watched her, um, YouTube video or anything, but so yeah, that is the traumatic and gruesome story of the Velisica Axe Murder House. Uh, it's pretty sad that some sicko had to kill innocent people. It's just, it's sad. But yeah, as always, I appreciate all you guys. Thank you so much for listening to Sinister Hauntings. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to help support me, here are some ways you can do that. Leave me a five-star review or rating on wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that's on RSS Podcasts, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. This will help other horror fanatics find me. I would love to hear from you, so leave me a message or comment on my post on Instagram at Sinister Hauntings Podcast and follow me there. I also have a TikTok at Sinister Hauntings where you can interact with me there. If you are old school and want to email me, you certainly can at SinisterHauntings at gmail.com and let me know how I'm doing or complain, whichever your heart desires. I always appreciate hearing from everyone. I hope you all have a wonderful week and weekend. Tune in next week, and thank you again for listening.